the first chapter. We're going to read the entire chapter of this book. And if you are using a Bible providing the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 768. As you turn to your Bibles to this passage, I want to remind you that as we begin this series, um, we will be looking at a different chapter each Sunday for the next three months. Um, and as a matter of fact, today we have um, put out in the bulletins and in the chairs in front of you and out in the atrium a little sermon card that will give you an idea about the themes and what we're going to be covering for the next three months. So if you're interested in what we're covering, please take one of these sermon cards, keep it with you, and you can pray that God would use this word to speak to us this fall. The book of Daniel, chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time, set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. 
in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which a king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Let's ask the Lord to use this to speak to our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Grant us, O Lord, to be equipped with the mysteries of your heavenly wisdom, with true progress in godliness, to your glory and to our own edification. May you speak to us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. Now put yourself in the land of Judah, 500, late 500 B.C., when Babylonian king besieged Jerusalem. Jerusalem destroyed. Temple worship, the temple that worshipped the one and living God, the only God, temple worship stops. No more church services. No more sacrifices. The very vessels of the house of God, the very instruments used to worship God, the very instruments that were used only for the worship of God, sanctified for the service of God alone, those very vessels are taken away, taken, taken to the land of Babylon and placed not just anywhere in somebody's closet, placed in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. Not just in his house, in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And actually, verse 2 tells us, in the treasury of Nebuchadnezzar's God. But it's not just the vessels, it's the people. People taken away. As a, as a matter of fact, we, talk, we know from history, they were taken away in three different movements, three different segments. And among them, among the first journey, is Daniel and his friends. It was because Daniel and his friends and many of the youth of the nobility of the royal family were taken away. The youth that were without blemish, youth of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning. In other words, these were the cream of the crop. The intelligentsia of Judah was taken away. And not just taken away, but now enlisted in a brainwashing academy program to retrain and retool these brains of Judah to serve no longer the living God, no longer the people of the living God, but now to serve the very king who enslaved the people of God. The exile was not just physical robbery. The exile was an intellectual robbery as well as a religious robbery. To our human interpretation, we would conclude God had left Judah. God departed from Judah. The vessels of God and the best of the people of God, now in the service of a pagan king, God has left his people. 
God has left his land. But that's not how the Bible describes this event. As a matter of fact, it is when God seems absent that Daniel assures us of his presence. How? Daniel chapter 1 assures us of God's presence when we, humanly speaking, would have every reason to conclude that God is absent. Let's look at three things as we look at Daniel 1. God is present, first of all, by his sovereign faithfulness. God is present by his sovereign faithfulness. Where is God when he should be defending his own temple? Where is God when he should be defending his vessels, his own vessels, his own people? Look at verse 2. Where is God? Look at verse 2 in this passage. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Oh, friends, this verse, verse 2, takes us behind the, stu- the stage of human action and gives us an explanation that you will find in no secular history. Who is doing this event? Well, if you ask the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he was doing it. If you are there to take um, journalist reports from the, from the soldiers who are fighting in the battle planning this besiege of Jerusalem and says, who's doing this? Who's in charge of this? They would all say, the king of Babylon, he's our captain, we're doing this. But if you were to step aside and go behind what the eye meets, if you could look behind simply the physical appearance of human actions, who's in charge of this event? God. God is. Nebuchadnezzar's army certainly fought. The soldiers certainly did their heavy work. But behind this entire besiege, God was acting. It was God who gave Judah to the king of Babylon. Now, friends, this phrase, God gave, shows up three times in this chapter. And it'll show up again in the book of Daniel. Now, you may see this phrase specifically if you're using an ESV Bible. Three times, if you're using an NIV or other versions, it might be a slightly different language, but three times in this passage, we see God acting in the sense of God giving. God gave is going to be a key phrase here. Now, how can God be present? How can God give the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, to Babylon? Where's God? He's right there, giving his own people, to Babylon. Why? How could God do this? Very simple. Because God is sovereign, first of all. And second of all, because God is faithful. You say, what do you mean God God is faithful here? How can God give his own people to the hand of the Babylonians and still be faithful? Well, he gives them into the hands of the Babylonians because he is faithful. Remember the passage that Marshall read earlier in the service, Isaiah 39? Years back, God sent 
his prophet Isaiah to Judah's king, at that time King Hezekiah. And he said, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And friends, that was declared by God as an act of punishment for Israel's sin, for Judah's sin. And now, God is just faithful to his word. When we get to Daniel 2, God is simply doing what he said he would do. Now we see here a picture of God's faithfulness. God remains faithful to his word. God remains faithful to his promises. Now friends, we love the idea of God's faithfulness, don't you? We sang about it early in the service. We love God's faithfulness when it benefits us. We love God's faithfulness when we are the beneficiaries of that. But when it hurts us, when God's faithfulness is manifested towards us in a way that's actually negative, do we still like God's faithfulness? Can we still sing and praise Him for His faithfulness? So where is God when Judah is besieged by the Babylonians? He's right there fulfilling His word and His faithfulness is sovereign. He's in control over things and over those circumstances which to our human eye, it would seem to be out of control. Chaos. People say, where's God when evil abounds? The Bible answers that question as early as Genesis 3. Remember what God told Adam? You are free to eat from every tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then move to the New Testament, Romans, 3, 23, uh, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Where's God when there's evil? He's right there. He said that the wages of our rebellion is more trouble. He said it, it. He declared it. The point, friends, is that even when we think that God is absent, we can be assured of His presence because His presence is manifested by His sovereign faithfulness. His faithfulness to His character, His faithfulness to His Word. There's a second way the presence of God is manifested. God is present by the trust His servants have in God. God is manifested by the trust His servants have in God. Once the exile takes place, once these Hebrew men, Hebrew young boys, young teenagers, adolescents, uh, they're taken to Babylon, they had every reason, they had every reason to be so malleable and shapeable into the image of Babylon. I want you to imagine teenagers away from home. The dream of every teenager, right? To get away from the parents' authority. To get away from the church's authority. Teenagers who want to get away. Here's Daniel. He didn't want to get away. That was not the way he, 
he had to leave. That was not the pleasant way, but still, a new beginning, a fresh start. No one's around to see him what he does wrong. No one is there to, to rebuke him, to admonish him, to keep an eye on him. Here's Daniel in Babylon. Not only that, but he's forced to do some things that perhaps every teenager would want to explore the joys of the new kingdom, the true luxuries of, of living in the king's palace. Here's Daniel. And yet, what's amazing about his life is he lives with a sense of the presence of God even in Babylon. He lives with a sense that God is there with him even in Babylon. And he does not want to forget about his God. He does not want to forget about his origins, about God's promises, about God's ways. Now, Daniel's life, his identity, his destiny are going to be changed. Nebuchadnezzar desired to show himself a conqueror over Israel by assimilating these young Hebrew men, assimilating the, them into his government structures so they might start loving Babylon, serving Babylon, serving the king with all their might, to the point of creating bitterness towards Israel, Jerusalem, God's people, God's land. So Babylon offers these boys a program of reculturalization, recontextualization, if you will. First, their names were changed. Four names that are given to us in Hebrew. Daniel. Do you know what Daniel means? God is my judge. What a beautiful name. God is my judge. I know we don't, we don't like the idea of God being a judge as a nice thing. But God is our judge. That's a beautiful name. A second name was... Um, Hananiah, Yahweh has been gracious. Now, we like that one better. Yahweh has been gracious. Then Mishael, it really means demanded by God. Demanded by God. And Azariah, Yah has helped. Yah has helped. Now, some of these names, we may wonder, God, you certainly don't act in the way these names would seem to indicate and yet, these four Hebrew boys live and walk with a sense of the presence of God in their lives, even in Babylon, that they're afraid of, of defilement. The second thing they do to them to, to change them is they're taking them through a significant curriculum change. No longer learning the laws of God, no longer learning the laws of, 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 the, of the Old Testament, the prophecies. But now they have to learn the language of the Babylonians and their literature and their wisdom. And third, their diet was changed. And you know the story. They were given the king's menu to eat his food and to drink his wine. Now, this was an unusual way of treating slaves. Don't you think? You're a slave in Babylon and you're given the king's food? What is going on with that? There's a very interesting uh, uh, explanation that some of the commentators are giving. They're saying this was uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's way of turning the hearts of these Hebrew men away from Israel to cherish and embrace the new system of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar would not put in his government structures people who would be inimical to Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar would not put people in the government structure who would actually be bitter against Babylon. 
So for three years, the intention is, let's, turk the, let's turn the affections of these Hebrew men who have been just exiled. Let's help them forget about the past. Let's help them forget about the tragedy of being taken away. And how are we going to help them do that? How are we going to try to, to shape their hearts, to turn their hearts from hating Babylon to loving it? Let's treat him for t- three years as kings. Let's give him the king's food. It was a way to move the affections of the heart, the affections of the mind, so that these men would actually embrace Babylon. Haven't you heard people who say something bad happens to them? They don't like it, but, but then there's something else really good coming along. And for that good, they say, you know, it's, it's okay to forget the bad. Because look, now we're treated as, as, as kings. That's exactly what's happening here. That's exactly what, Bab- what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. And yet, of all the three things that were done to these Hebrew boys, these Hebrew young men, it's the very last that they refuse to go with. Out of these changes, Daniel refuses a king's menu, not because he was not tasty, because of what verse 8 says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Now, there's a big question about what exactly caused the defilement. What caused Daniel to defile himself? Was it the food itself? Something that might have been the food itself, with unclean foods. Others think, well, even if it was not unclean food, the fact that the food might have been, the food and the wine might have been given to idols or Uh, dedicated to idols first, that might defile the food. The problem, though, with both of these explanations is Daniel's solution when he's committed not to have it. Daniel's solution is a test that he asks the Babylonian people to do on them, and then then Daniel says, then you, at the end of the ten days, you determine if you will give this to us or not. Now, friends, that is not a good model of how to deal with temptations. That is not a good model of trying to negotiate temptations and say, those in power, if you really test us out and see, and if if it's not going to work out, okay, we're going to do it. (laughs) No. In the book of Daniel, it's very clear that every time there is an issue of sin against the Lord, these Hebrew men would rather die than sin against God. So this kind of negotiation gives us a hint that defilement may have not been in the food itself. Not even because it might have been offered to idols or if it was unclean food. The defilement is in somewhere, somewhere else. The defilement is in the consequences that the royal food would actually have upon these Hebrew men to forget about their God, to forget about Israel, to forget about their origins, so that they might embrace the values, they might embrace the luxuries of Babylon and the new plans this king has with these Hebrew boys. The defilement is in the consequences that this food, the luxurious menu, might give to Daniel and to his friends. Daniel refuses to be intoxicated or poisoned by the royal menu a menu aimed at helping these Hebrew boys forget their origins, their God, and their pain. So Daniel determines not to eat of the king's menu 
but rather to eat a food that would remind him daily of where he came from. I love what John Calvin says, sloth and softness naturally creep over us and induce us to reject the cross. Sloth and softness naturally creep over us and induce us to reject the cross. Daniel is determined to refuse a king's menu so that his heart, his mind, even his worship might not be numbed by the luxurious food prepared by the royal chefs of Babylon. It's the numbing that's the danger of the defilement. It's the numbing that the luxuries of Babylon were, were going to offer these boys that Daniel is refusing. That's what has the potential of defiling himself, him. And just because Daniel set his heart to pursue this track is not the end of the story. The point of the story is not simply Daniel determined not to eat the king's menu. What's the point of the story? Well, look at the refusal Daniel gives and the solution Daniel gives. That tells us Daniel had a trust in his God in an unparalleled way. Because the test that Daniel asks for is really a test of who God is. You say, how do we get that from this passage? Look with me for a second. Daniel resolved in his heart not to eat the king's food. So he goes to the chief eunuch to ask for permission. And the answer is, no way. The eunuch says, if I do this, I'm going to die because your body, after eating vegetables, might look way slimmer than the other ones. Yes, they were, Daniel, I mean the eunuch, was afraid that if he eats only vegetables, they'll be slimmer. We understand that today, right? We know that. The problem is, when the test is over and Daniel has lived only on vegetables, they're fatter than the other one. Now that, we don't understand how that works. This is not about food, organic food, and how the laws of food work. Something else is going on in this passage. Something totally else is going on. So Daniel gets a no from the chief eunuch. He says, no, I can't, I can't have you eat only on vegetables because you're going to be really, really slim, and that's not good. I'm going to die. So Daniel, what does he do? He doesn't give up. He goes to the other person who was actually now the servant. That's not the same person as the chief eunuch. He now goes to the very person who was supposed to give him the food. And he says, let's make a bet. Not a bet. Let's give a test. It's not a bet. It's a test. And the test is test us for 10 days and see who's going to look better, healthier and stronger. In those days, by the way, for those of you who are so interested and consumed with your weight, in those days, to be weighty was to be healthy. People who are slim were not healthy. So let's just be very open about that. Um, that's the way Daniel operates. So at the end of the 10 days, we read that they were better looking in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. Now, how is that possible? This is not a food test. This is really about the trust in God, the trust that God alone is the source of life, God alone is a source of health. God alone is a source of strength. God alone is the one who works through 
every human means and controls the outcome of what happens. This is a trust in the sovereign control of God. You see, how do we get that from this passage? Even though this um, food, uh, this test involved food, the question is, can God sustain life without the rich food? This was a test that Daniel is really giving to the servant. Can God sustain life without rich food? What is the source of physical health? Is it the food? Try to give healthy food to a dead person. See if it can come up to life. It won't. Because healthy food is not the source of life. Healthy food is not the source of health. Who is the source of health? God. When God called Israel out of Egypt and led them to the promised land, one of the tests God gave Israel was to see if Israel could trust in God. That God is a true source of everything. And here's how that test is recounted in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Moses says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is the Lord who gives the source for our body life, the source for our physical strength, the source for health. It is God. Now, yes, God, by His grace, He provides our food for our nourishment so that we may get things from our food. But the one who puts the strength of life in the food is God himself. And what Daniel is giving these Babylonians is a test. Test God. Can God make us healthy and strong without the riches of the king's menu? This is no longer a food-related question. This is a God-related question. Do we believe that whatever food we feed on, we are nourished and sustained by God's gratuitous power, not by the food itself? How likely was it that at the end of the three years, when these men who graduated from the King's Academy would look back at what they've accomplished and how good they looked and how healthy they were and look back and say, wow, that King's menu was really great. Right? What's the likelihood of, of, of putting their trust and realizing what makes us so great? Well, look at how we've been treated for the last three years. That's exactly what Daniel tries to avoid. He tries to avoid giving the credit to the king's menu for the source of their strength, for the source of their good looks, for the source of their healthy state. So Daniel, he says, test us for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, who made that happen? Who made that happen? God. It was not Daniel's wisdom in the laws of organic foods. It's not that Daniel helped the Babylonians invent 
Whole Foods. No. It's God. And God was working in this test from the very beginning when Daniel approached a chief eunuch. You know, how do, how do we know God is working in this? Well, because if you have the ESV version, in verse 9, it says, God gave, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. If the NIV says, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Friends, this is the second time this phrase, God shows, gave, shows up. God made this test possible. Yes, Daniel was committed not to defile himself. But we must be very careful not to put such a spotlight on Daniel that we forget who made this test possible. It was God. For had the test failed, Daniel would have been eating the king's menu for the rest of the three years. It is God who gave success to Daniel to keep himself pure. Yes, when Daniel describes how he was able to defile, not to defile himself, he does not point simply to his decision. He points to God. Daniel set his heart not to defile himself, but one who made it possible was God. Friends, in the battle with our own temptations, when we are tempted to give in, when we are tempted to defile ourselves through whatever issues, through whatever things, we too must keep this God-centered view in our minds. If we experience any spiritual success in our lives, who do we boast in? In our spiritual disciplines? Or do we boast in God's favor and grace who enables us not to defile ourselves? And just as King Nebuchadnezzar tried to turn the hearts of these Hebrew boys by enticing them with the luxurious royal food, let us remember it's not about the food. The defilement is not in the food, but in how the allurements of the world entice us to become slothful and soft in our remembrance of God, in our remembrance of His ways, in our remembrance that He owns us, and in our trust and reliance upon Him even while we eat. Friend, when you try to eat more healthy, to be more healthy, are you trusting in your food and your diet for the health? Are you trusting in God? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be cautious of what you eat. I'm just saying, where is your trust? Where do you look for the source of your health? It's God. Trust in God. But as we look further, there's not just an issue that God's presence is there by the trust of His people in Him, even in Babylon. There's a third way God shows us His presence in Babylon. It's by reversing the roles. God shows His presence in Babylon by reversing the roles. We've seen God showing His presence in, in Babylon or in, in Judah by His sovereign control. We've seen God's presence by the trust of His servants in Him, even while in Babylon. Thirdly, we see God present by reversing the roles. After the ten days of testing is over, the story Fast forwards to the end of the three years, to the end of Bab uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, academy, if you will. Who will graduate? Who will graduate? And not only who will graduate, who will graduate with honors? Look at verse 18. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief 
of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Now, did you hear that? It's not simply that Daniel graduated valid Victorian in his class. No, no, no. He graduated being ten times wiser, not simply than his classmates, but ten times wiser than all the magicians and the enchanters in the entire kingdom of Babylon. Oh, friends, this is important for us because, the end, because we have to ask, how did this happen? And the answer is, look back at verse 17. As for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom. There is a God in Babylon. How do we know? Because he's working in the lives of his people and he's reversing, he's reversing the roles. God was the one giving the wisdom. God was the one giving the learning. And this information is important because the wisdom of these Hebrew boys came neither from their diplomas, came neither from the place where they graduated from, it came neither from the teachers who taught them, came neither from the smartness of the students. That wisdom came from God. God gave it to them. How, how interesting when we boast about somebody being really smart. One of the things we, we say about them, oh, he's from, you know, he graduated at Harvard. He's smart. But did you hear somebody say, oh, he's smart. God really gave that man a lot of wisdom. Even in our own language, we, send, we tend to prefer to think of the source of our wisdom and of the qualities of our wisdom by referring to where we studied, what we've done, what we've accomplished. And here, Daniel points us very clearly to the reality that it is God who gave the wisdom. Why is this important? Why in this chapter we see these two tests, the test of food and then the test that Daniel is being um, tested to see his wisdom because God wants to make very clear that the one who gave them not only the strength for his, their physical looks, but the one who gave them the wisdom is God. And what he gives is ten times better than all the wisdom and strength of Babylon. Babylon throughout the Bible is a city whose name signifies human achievement, human glory, human power, and human pride. Do you know where we first meet with Babylon in the Bible? We meet, it, meet with it in Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel are the, the foundations of Babylon. Do you know when we meet with Babylon for the last time in the Bible? Revelation 17 and 18. When ba Babylon now represents the pinnacle of the human cultures, human wisdom, human economy, everything that man can put together by their best efforts, you see in the book of Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Go home and read about Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, and you'll get a sense of what Babylon represents. Friends, 
How amazing and how ironic that God puts his servants in the very heart of Babylon, being trained for three years by the very king of Babylon, by his best curriculum, being fed on his food to prove how truly great is Babylon. And at the end of those three years, after Daniel refuses both the food and he trusts in God for his wisdom, for his, for his knowledge, God truly shows whose wisdom is stronger, whose power is greater. Oh, friends, how ironic that the events in Daniel's life are not just a nice story. They are a real-life message about how God relates to mankind. These four men were taken to Babylon. They find themselves in a position of leadership. How ironic. How ironic. The wisdom they had was from God. And the way they made it to the leadership positions is not by political cunningness. It's not by force. They made it in those high places of leadership because of the wisdom God gave them. God was present in Babylon by reversing the roles. Oh, friends, we see that there's reversal of roles in another way in the last verse of chapter, two, of chapter 1, verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, what's so big about King Cyrus? King Cyrus is one of the kings of the empires who overcame Babylon. This is huge. Babylon is gone, but Daniel is still alive. This is huge. Not only one king of Babylon, but two kings of Babylon have gone. And the metal Persian empire comes, and then another comes, and Daniel is still there. This is the reversal that God says about his saints in the entire book of Daniel. It is this message that we see in the visions of Daniel at the end when it says that the servants of God might go through some turmoil, might go through some trouble, but at the very end, they will still be there. How? Through the resurrection. Friends, it is this message of great reversal that God shows that He is indeed present in our lives. Now, the reality is we would love to go straight to this third point to show God's presence. We would love to go to God's reversal. If God could do the reversal right now, right here, all the time, it would be so great and so neat. But this is the hope of the book of Daniel. No matter where we find ourselves, whether we're still in the ex exiles of our own fallen human nature, whether we go through the temptations that tempt and allure us to defile ourselves before God, there is a God wherever you are. There is a God in your circumstance. Through trials or temptations, there is a God. And trust that He will reverse the role. Even if you feel so down today, even if you feel that your burden is too heavy, that your temptations are too hard for you to overcome, there is hope for us because of what God has done ultimately in the cross of Christ. He took apart upon himself our exile. He took upon himself the punishment which we deserved so that through his death he broke the power of sin over our lives so we no longer have to be slaves to sin so that we might live 
pure and we might live in godliness. And it is not because of our strength, it is because God's grace to sustain His saints to live with purity. There is a God in Babylon. There is a God in your life. I pray that you would be encouraged by the book of Daniel as we begin the sermon series, as we look at his message that God will reverse the roles. Even if it doesn't happen now, we can trust in him. He will do it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you confront us in the very beginning of the book of Daniel when we see so much turmoil and hardship. You confront us with a message of your sovereign control and of your presence. We thank you that you are sovereign in turmoil. We thank you that you are sovereign working wonders as we face temptations. We thank you that you're sovereign in the end. Then we can look to the end with hope that in your wisdom, you will overcome the wisdom of the earth. And that you have done so already in the cross of Christ. And it is to him that we look as sustenance, as hope, as strength, source of our strength, so that we might carry our lives each day in a way that glorifies you. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would live with a sense of the presence of God in us every day, this week, in the name of Christ. Amen.